We'd like to welcome you to our current event and weekly Bible study for July 19th, 2009. And today we're going to be continuing our study on the uh, Hebrew Roots Christian Zion movement. Zionism, I should say, movement. And we're going to be... I was going to start back on the study that we had originally started on, but I'm going to take the Sabbath study a little bit further and answer most likely whatever... If there were any more remaining objections regarding the Sabbath, I do believe it will be taken care of today in a biblical fashion. Uh, this is going to be... I'm going to give you... The first thing we're going to be doing is looking at several reasons why the first day of the week, or Sunday, is important to Christians. And we're going to be... Uh, actually, this is going to be a very in-depth look at that. We're going to be looking at what the early Christians the writings of early Christians in regard to this matter. And you're going to see, this is an incredibly black and white matter to the early Christians regarding uh, Sunday versus the Sabbath. And again, what I'm finding as I get further into the study is that all of the things that the Hebrew Roots Movement and the Christian Zionism Movement are trying, all of these tenets that they're trying to bring back into Christianity they try to make it sound very innocent, like we're just getting back to our Hebrew roots. Well, from what the Bible says in the New Testament, from what the early Christian uh, teachers and writers are saying, this, and from what I can look at in the New Testament regarding Jesus Christ and the Apostles, the main problem that they had right off the bat were the... Judaizers that came in to spy out their liberty in Christ and bring them back into bondage, as the book of Galatians talks about. Uh, they were referred to as the concision, and they believed that you had to be circumcised, and you had to keep the Sabbath, and you had to do this or that, and this had to be added in to the process of salvation. And it turned into a works-based type of system. This was the main problem that Jesus Christ dealt with, that the apostles dealt with, and really, you know, throughout history, but more so in the early centuries, okay, this attempted re, not a re, but Judaization of clear Christian tenets and principles, um, it's come full circle at this point. And we're battling the same things today as Jesus Christ and the apostles did back then. And I have personally never, ever been attacked in such a... Uh, it's hard to describe. I've just never been attacked in such a way as I have since I've started this Hebrew root study. And... Uh, it's pretty amazing. It's just coming from all angles. Nothing that's happening to me is dissuading me in any way, shape, or form. All it really wants to make me do is fight harder. I look at who the main people that are attacking me right now, and we've got a, uh, a uh, large group of gays, transgendered, uh, uh, goth. Um, we're talking some serious perverts. They're after me. They've got a whole web page up about me on the internet, and it's a parody. Okay, the, the whole page is lies. And they even say it's, it's a parody. Um, and that's how they evidently have license in order to say whatever they're saying about me. And um, 
But whoever put that page up really must have listened to a ton of my teachings in order to twist the things, things that I've said and things of that nature into this page of, of lies and half-truths, and, and it's a parody. But it's, it's, uh, it's unbelievable, you know, what they're doing. And then we have the other Hebrew Roots movement that is coming after me with an absolute vengeance. And I've only made a couple passing remarks about specific ministries. I haven't done any dedicated teachings on specific Hebrew Roots ministers or ministries uh, or the people or the individuals that are specifically attacking me. I haven't even brought their names up in any of the teachings uh, regarding trying to do some type of dedicated study toward them to expose them. Uh, but boy, they character assassination and you know every manner of thing. But you know, the, as the Bible says, you know you need you need to count it all joy when you suffer persecution. I do believe that this is persecution, and I know they're going to say the exact opposite. Oh no, you're well. We'll see. I pray to God in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ that He judge between me and all these people that are attacking me. And I pray to God in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ that if I am not doing the will of the Lord in regard to this matter, in regard to this Hebrew root study, or even in regard to this ministry, that he shut my mouth. I, re- I, I mean that. I don't want to be teaching falsehood. I don't want to be leading anyone astray. I'm not doing this so I can be seen of all men or be honored of, of, among all men. If anything, you know, that which is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of in the sight of the Lord. I'm undergoing more fire on this than anything I've ever even approached. It's not as though I'm doing this so I can be popular or get attention. I could care less about that. My life's not a popularity contest. Uh, neither is any Christian's life. But the venom and the and the outright half truths and lies that are coming out is unlike anything I've ever seen. But again, Jesus said, you know, blessed are ye when you're persecuted for my sake, you know, and men speak all manner of evil about you. So I'm, I'm looking at it from that perspective exclusively, and I'm, what I'm trying to do is look, again, stick with the Bible. What does the Bible say? What do these uh, extra-biblical books that are, are being referenced say uh, in regard to what we're actually exposing, like the Talmud and the Midrash and these types of things? And let's just compare, let's compare the two. And um, let's see what happens. Now, we've already done 12 studies. I have no idea how many studies this is going to go into. Uh, I would venture to say probably at least 30, uh, if not 40, uh, which is far greater than anything I've ever tried to take on. Uh, But this issue is vast. There's a lot of different deceptions that go along with the whole Hebrew roots, Christian Zion. And I I know there's different flavors of that, and a lot of them try to say, well, I'm not part of that. And yet, the ones that say that, they've got a hexagram on their homepage, and and they openly admit to using the Midrash for scripture interpretation. So, yes, I'm not saying there's not different flavors, and there's some that are more extreme than others. But the bottom line is they're still participating uh, in this movement in some way, shape, or form. And um, uh, anyway, we're gonna, we'll probably get a little bit more into the specific um, things that are being leveled against me uh, in some subsequent teachings. And uh, just to clarify, 
some matters. So anyway, we're going to be looking at some reasons for the significance of the first day of the week, Sunday, in the New Testament. Um, Number one, okay, number one, Jesus rose on the first day of the week and not the Sabbath. Now, the first day of the week in the Bible is referred to as Sunday, okay, that's a fact, Okay, it was the day Jesus Christ rose again. If you go to uh, Mark sixteen nine, Luke twenty four one through six, so I'll just go to Mark six sixteen nine, real quick here, just so we can, uh, you know, start to establish some of this. I'm not going to go to every single Bible verse. I will say them because there's too many. There, there we we'd be here for weeks if we were to probably try to go to every Bible verse to verify what we're saying. But, if you look at Mark 69 and Luke 24, 1-6, regarding the first day of the week, um, Mark 69, Now when Jesus was risen early, the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had cast seven devils. Okay. Now this is the same one that the the supposedly, you know, if you look at Holy Blood, Holy Grail, and the Da Vinci Code, and all of this garbage that they've got out there, um, they were saying that Jesus actually took Mary Magdalene and, you know, had children, or whatever. That's one of the many, many heresies that we're dealing with now. I've done whole studies on that, uh, that you can reference if you go to my homepage and do a keyword search box on the homepage. And you can do... um, Oh, my word. Uh, Merovingian, you could find it, or Lost Tomb of Jesus, Holy Blood, Holy Grail. Those are probably all keywords you could use on the search page. But anyway, it's very clear here that um, it says, when Jesus was risen early, the first day of the week. Okay, he didn't rise on the Sabbath. It was the first day of the week. It was Sunday. Okay. Now, the first day of the week is also referred to in the Bible as the eighth day, which is kind of, I know that sounds a little bit weird, but it, it is one of the ways that is actually referred to. Now, the biggest thing I see that the Hebrew Roots Movement ministers and or teachers are doing, the tactic I see them using, regardless of the ministry, right off the bat, is they always, 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 one of their first arguments in order to get you to see things their way is to convince you that this, that whatever word or phrase you're looking at was mistranslated. Particularly, it was mistranslated in the King James Bible. That is their justification for everything. That's where it all starts. The Michael Rood video that, that I had viewed the other day, first thing the guy comes out of the gate saying is, is this was a mistranslation, this was a mistranslation. It's the exact same thing that the serpent was doing. Now, why, if the Lord Jesus Christ is the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the same in the beginning was God, okay, Jesus Christ is the incarnate Word of God. And that the Bible says, Forever, O Lord, thy Word is settled in heaven, Psalm 119, verse 89. And that the words of the Lord are pure words, as silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. Thou shalt keep them, O Lord. Thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. Okay. Psalm 12, 6, and 7 is where that's said. He's promised to preserve his words and preserve them forever. And knowing that God is not the author of confusion, why would all of a sudden in the end times he send us these 
wonderful uh, pseudo-Jewish rabbi, Hebrew Roots Movement ministers to help us get straightened out on what the Word of God really says and really means and get us doubting what the Word of God really means because that's the exact same thing they do right off the bat and get us convinced that we have to have the Midrash or these other extra-biblical books in order to interpret Scripture. Where does it say that in the Bible, particularly in the New Testament, that we have to consult extra-biblical books in order to understand the Bible? Jesus said... When, when I go, it's expedient that I go, because when I go, I will send you the Comforter, and he will bring into remembrance all these things that you need to know. And I'm paraphrasing here, but essentially, the Holy Spirit that comes down and lives in a born-again Christian is what brings these things to remembrance. It's the reason that somebody can... Um, I believe the, the Comforter, or the Holy Spirit that lives inside a born-again Christian, is what enables you to quote Scripture to a certain extent. Uh, why would... Jesus, who sent us the Comforter, the Holy Spirit, why all of a sudden do we need to be mired up in all of this confusion about, well, yeah, this is a mistranslation, and, and, and we need to seek these extra-biblical books, and knowing that this very time that we're moving into was the time that Jesus Christ warned us about, where he said to be ye not deceived. And if it were possible, they shall deceive the very elect. Hopefully it's obvious after the first 12 studies that this is part of the strong delusion that God is permitting that is coming upon the world and the pseudo-Christian church that they will believe a lie, that they might all be damned who receive not the love of the truth. And I do view this as, as an issue of in, a very incredibly serious issue that we're dealing with here. The first thing these people are doing right off the bat is questioning the Word of God. I haven't seen one ministry that doesn't do it. Okay, some are going so far as to say as the New Testament's invalid. We're going to be looking at some quotes um, in subsequent teachings regarding that, that issue where they're really, they're really coming out and just saying that, that the whole New Testament was totally mistranslated. Um, again, it's the same exact tactic. The exact same tactic that Satan using the Garden of Eden toward Eve. Yea, hath God said. He's questioning God's word. Now, Jesus said, If you continue in my word, then are you my disciples indeed, and ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. The word of God being the King James Bible. Or is it all of the other hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of versions that spawned from the 1881 revised version, most of them did, from some corrupt Catholic manuscripts, the Sinaiticus and the Vaticanus that had their origins in Alexandria, Egypt. Are all of those Bibles, the ones that, you know, the hundreds of other versions, are they the correct versions? How could they all be? God's not the author of confusion. He says, forever, O Lord, thy word. There's not like multiple translations that, that match the word of God. And then we have the King James Bible, which comes up through a totally different line. God's not the author of confusion. It's very important that you're reading the right Bibles, the point I'm trying to make. If you continue in my word, then are you my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. How do you continue in his word if you're reading a perverted Bible? I'm not saying you can't get saved. I, I got saved um, actually uh, reading the book In Route to Global Occupation by Gary Kaw, and that had a lot of NIV verses in it. But ultimately, the Lord showed me the truth about the Bible versions, and when I finally found out that the King James Bible was the true word of God, it was like all of a sudden, all of these other things I was blind to, 
particularly at that time I was in the Pentecostal church, all of a sudden now I could see them. And I'm like, man, what was I thinking? My worst. They're doing this, they're doing this, they're doing this. They're totally unbiblical. But before I didn't see it. Truly, I did not see it. The King James, when I finally got a hold of the King James Bible being the Word of God, it was like a light bulb came on. Now I'm telling you, that's my personal testimony. And it was one of the most pivotal things that ever happened to me after I got saved. So, just for your own edification. Now, so, what if we're not continuing in His Word? Okay, what if, what if we're getting away from the hope of the Gospel and, and from His Word and these types of things? I mean, there's a warning that, you know, I think we want to take heed of here. The Bible says, Whoso despiseth the Word shall be destroyed. Proverbs 13 13, the number of rebellion, despising his word. Is not that what we're doing if we constantly question and say, oh, this is a mistranslation? Oh, no, it doesn't apply. Oh, no, I need to have some man interpret this scripture for me. Whereas, whereas the Bible says the prophecies of God are of, are of no private interpretation. Are not we adding to the words of God and taking away? And we look at the very end of Revelation, it says, you know, if you take away from the words of God, I'll take away your part out of the book of life. If you add to these words, I'll add unto you the plagues written in this book. It's not, in other words, it's not something I really want to mess around with. And I don't think any of us should, should mess around with it either. From a fear of God standpoint, you don't mess around with the Word of God. This is part of earnestly contending for the faith that was once delivered unto the saints as we're commanded to do in Jude. We're commanded to do that. Now we know in the day and times we're living in, there's going to be many wolves in sheep's clothing, there's going to be a lot of hirelings that come in, and these are going to be the very source of apostasy. And I mean, all you have to really do is look at the modern day church and understand, to understand it's been totally infiltrated at this point. Uh, through their 501c3 corporations, yoking up with the government, uh, you could go on and on and on. The false Bible versions are another aspect of that as well. Well, the Bible says in John 15, starting at verse 1, Jesus talking, I am the true vine, and my father is the husbandman. Okay, so Jesus Christ is the true vine. The father's the husbandman, meaning like he's the, uh, I guess comparing him to like the farmer. Okay. Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away. Now this is kind of a Christian self-check. Okay, I'm not talking about work salvation here. I'm just saying, he wants us to bear fruit. Okay. It's something that, that we need to be doing. Every branch that beareth fruit, he purgeth it. Meaning, it's like he, you're, he's going to prune it. Okay, I believe that's part of the chastening of God. Whom the Lord loveth, he also chasteneth. And if you be without chastisement, then you're bastards. Okay, So if there's no chastening of God on your life and you're living in sin, okay, that's a, not a good thing. Because most likely you're not even saved. Every branch that beareth fruit, he purgeth it, that it may bring forth more fruit. Okay, so, this is something that is very important to look at. Okay, so, he's saying every branch that beareth fruit, he purgeth it. Because none of us have arrived. It's not like we're all walking around in sinless perfection and we're just fruit-bearing machines that don't need any work, okay? M myself being the chief, okay, so... Um, 
But he's doing that so that we bring forth more fruit. Okay? Verse 3, very important verse here in regard to this whole scenario. Now ye are clean. Ye are clean. Hmm. You're clean through the word which I've spoken unto you. What if you're reading a perverted Bible? What if you're within the Hebrew Roots Movement and you don't even think the New Testament applies? What if you're going by all these extra-biblical teachings that are not the Word of God? You notice, I don't get on here and, and, and recommend, oh, read this book and read this book and read this book. I don't have time to read books anymore. I have barely enough time to keep up with this ministry uh, and, and you know to be in the Word of God I barely have enough time. Okay, Now, I'm not saying there's no books that you should never read or whatever, but you go into the Christian bookstores, and if, if all these books were the answer, you go into these Christian bookstores, then why isn't the church in, why isn't the church in the sorriest shape it's probably ever been in since its inception? It's not for lack of books. In fact, I think a lot of those books are causing these problems. I think it's obvious. Look at the fruit. Look at the fruit of the Laodicean church in Revelation 3. They're blind, they're weak, they're wretched, they're naked, yet they think they're in need of nothing. They think they're in need of nothing. They, we're good. Isn't that what the church is doing pretty much today? They, they think they're in need of nothing, yet they're in a pretty sorry state according to the word of God. So, now you're clean through the word which I've spoken unto you. So, if we go to... Um, like Psalm uh, 119, verse 9. So Psalm 119, verse 9. I've quoted this many times. Um, Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way? How do you cleanse your way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Okay, what if you're reading a corrupt Bible? Now, if you have any doubts about this King James issue, just key in KJV, the, the letters KJV, in the search box on my homepage... And it'll give you all the teachings I've taught on this. Okay, because I'm not going to do, go into that. I've already addressed that issue thoroughly. Um, and then it goes on in verse 11, Psalm 119, Thy word have I hid in mine heart, that I might not sin against thee. So, this is in reference, I believe, to memorizing scripture. Taking heed thereto, according, how do you take heed if you don't know the, the words of God? Okay. And it says, now you're clean through the word which I've spoken unto you. In, in verse 3 of uh, John 15. It says in verse 25 of Psalm 119, My soul cleaveth unto the dust, quicken thou me according to thy word. What That word quicken means to make alive. Okay? So we are quickened spiritually, okay, according to his word. Again, ask yourself, if you're... If you're going by perverted Bibles, if you're, if you're going by the teachings of men, extra-biblical teachings, how is that quickening you? Now, if the teachings you're looking at are pointing you back to the Word of God, that's one thing. But I'm not in reference to that. If you've listened to the other um, teachings we've done on this subject, you'll, you'll understand that these teachings are taking you away from the Word of God, or causing you to doubt it. Or, th or causing you to think it's totally mistranslated. Every single person I've ever seen get involved with the Christian Zionism movement or Hebrew roots, the same thing happens to them every single time. 
they all start questioning the word of God. They'll, they'll, they stop taking any kind of stance on the KJV. But they're just getting back to their Hebrew roots, so it's okay. That's I keep getting it over and over. People email me like it's some little innocent thing, and it's not. It's not innocent. It says in verse 28, My soul melteth for heaviness. Strengthen thou me according unto thy word. I mean, it's it goes over and over and over and over again that the way, really the narrow way, in the way to blessings regarding the word of God is staying in his word. It's very, very, very clear regarding this whole situation. So, going back to John 15.3, Now you are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. Now, where do we also see this analogy? Let's go to Ephesians 5.26. Ephesians 5.26 That he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word. Okay? This is another thing that is um, where we compare the word to water. That he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of the water by the word. Now, let's go back to verse 25. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. Christ, Jesus Christ gave himself, he died upon the cross for his church, okay, to save our souls, to pay our sin debt. Verse 26, that he, meaning Jesus, might sanctify, which means to make holy and set apart, that he might sanctify and cleanse it. How does he cleanse the church, and sanctify it with the washing of the water by the word, by the word of God. You see how important this subject is? And then verse 27, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. Now, a lot of people would like to quote that verse, but how is that verse obtained? The verse is obtained by the previous verse. It tells us that Jesus sanctifies the church and cleanses it with the washing of the water by the Word, the Word of God. Most of the time, you don't hear the previous verse quoted. You just, oh, we're going to be presented as spotless and glorious. Yeah, and in there we've got all these huge swaths of, of pseudo-Christianity telling you that, oh, it's okay to to read these other Bibles, and it's okay to go by all these extra-biblical uh, writers who in interject their unbiblical opinions into things. Uh, let's go to John seventeen seventeen. Okay. Uh, let's just go to verse 14. Jesus, talking to the Father says, I have given them thy word, and the world hath hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Now, these are not carnal Christians they're in reference to. These are not the Christians that are out there, you know, acting like the world, and living like the world, supposedly trying to win the world with that lifestyle. And there's many of them out there. But Jesus says to the Father, I have given them thy word. 
thy word. It's, it's really an important subject we're talking about here. And this is why I'm so emphatic about the, K, the King James Bible and staying in the word and not following man. Or not follow, I mean, I'm, I tell people, don't follow me. Follow what the word of God says. And that's what we're doing. We're looking at the Bible. We're comparing scripture to scripture as the Bible commands. We're rightly dividing the word of truth. So Jesus says, I've given them thy word, and the world hath hated them. See, when you start dwelling and fixating on the word of God, and proclaiming it, and or living it, the world will hate you. I've never undergone so much hate as I have in the last three or four weeks. And really what it boils down to is this subject. Particularly with the Hebrew roots and the Christian Zionists, because like I said, the first thing their supposed rabbis or teachers always do is get attacked. The King James Bible. It's it's what I always see. Or they'll just try to character assassinate you. One or the other. I've given them thy word, and the world hath hated them. Because they are not of the world. See, this isn't our home. Truly, we're just passing through. Even as I am not of the world. I pray not. I mean, didn't they hate Jesus Christ particularly? Pharisees and Sadducees, and at the end, I mean, look what happened. I pray not that thou shouldest take them out of the world, but that thou shouldest keep them from the evil. The Bible talks about pray that you be, be, be accounted worthy to escape all the things that are coming upon the world. Jesus Christ said that, particularly in regard to the end times. That's something, it's fine to pray that. It's not being a coward to pray that. Okay? Because he said you should pray that. But if you never do that, and if the Bible says the prudent man foreseeth the evil and hideth himself, but the simple pass on and are punished, and you're living like a carnal Christian, how do you ever expect to get protection in the end times? Now, I'm not saying that that, that necessarily means that that person that prays that, every one of them are going to be protected and not undergo any kind of persecution or whatever. But Jesus Christ says, I pray not that thou shouldest take them out of the world. If you're a true born-again Christian that has a grip on what we're talking about today, then you're a very rare breed. There's not a lot of people like you out there. So, Jesus says that he's not praying that that those types of Christians be taken out of the world because you're like salt and light to a dying world. There's not a lot of it out there, though. The, The apostasy now is greater than it has ever been, ever in the history of mankind. And you're going to be attacked. You're going to be hated for your viewpoints. The Bible's very clear on that. I pray not that thou shouldest take them out of the world, but that thou shouldest keep them from the evil. Verse 16. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Verse 17. Sanctify them through thy truth. Sanctify, remember? to be made holy and set apart. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. That is how we're sanctified and set apart. This is how we, the the chief way, I believe, we abide in the vine. Okay, let's go back to, to John 15. I am the true vine, and my father is the husbandman. Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away. And every branch that beareth fruit, he purgeth it, that it may bring more fruit. Now ye are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. So, see, that's the key to this whole passage of Scripture. We're clean through the word which he has spoken unto This is the remedy 
for abiding in the vine. Okay? Then it goes on in verse 4. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit in itself, except it abide in the vine, no more can ye except ye abide in me. In other words, if you're a branch, and you've been cut off from the vine, there's no way you can bear fruit. All you're going to do is wither and die, which is what we're going to talk about next. But if you're abiding in the vine, and abiding in his word, remember, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, the same was God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. This is John 1. And it said, Then the word became flesh and dwelt among men, and they beheld his glory as the glory of the only begotten Son. This is Jesus Christ. He's saying, Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine. No more can ye except ye abide in me. So there's no way you can bear fruit. There's no way you can bear fruit, real fruit, except you're abiding in Jesus Christ. And that is synonymous with abiding in His Word. Okay, so... Again, John 15, verse 4. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine. No more can ye, except ye abide in me. The only way we can do that is by abiding in his word. Okay, he's very, it's very clear about that. Now you are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. And I'm going to prove it even further than that. I am the vine and you are the branches, verse 5. He keeps saying this over and over again because he's trying to drive this point home. He that abideth in me, remember, Jesus is the Word. He is the Word. The Bible is very clear. Just see John 1. He that abideth in me, and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me ye can do nothing. Now, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, meekness, goodness, faith, temperance, the fruit of the Spirit can encompass winning souls and and in prayer and, and living a uh, sanctified life. And, and there, you know, there's a lot of things you could look at uh, to exemplify in, in, in regard to the fruit of the Spirit, okay? Bearing much fruit. comes That can come in many ways, shapes, or forms. Remember, we're the body of Christ, the finger cannot say to the eye, depart of me, I have no need of you. And the finger's function in regard to fruit bearing may be a totally different type of fruit that the finger is bearing as opposed to the eye. Why? Because they're two totally separate parts of the body. So the finger may have fruit bearing a lot in one particular area, whereas the eye may have a lot of fruit bearing in one particular area. Okay, so it's, again, I... You don't always want to start comparing yourself with another. Well, that guy went and, and you know, he's won thousand souls to the Lord. And, and some prayer warrior that's over there on their knees every day that may not have that evidence of winning souls, but see, they don't... We don't know until we get to heaven. We don't know until we get to the judgment seat of Christ. Our works will be judged at the judgment seat of Christ if you're born-again Christian. And they're going to be judged by fire as either gold, silver, or precious stones, which are the works that are going to abide and will be rewards, or wood, hay, or stubble, which will be burned up, which would be works that a born-again Christian did, but really most likely to be seen of men, to get recognition. Their heart wasn't in the right place. 
okay, when they, when they perform those. And the Bible says that there will be some saved, yet so as by fire. Now, that's not really what I want to be saved as. Yet, yet so as by fire. That's like not the way you, re- you want to get into heaven. So you have to, um, uh, these are just things to think about. Okay, so verse 6. If a man abide not in me, so this is the this is the converse side. He's talked about abiding in Jesus, but then Jesus says, "If a man abide not in me, he is cast forth as a branch, and is withered. And men gather them, and cast them into the fire, and they are burned." I don't know. That doesn't sound real good to me. Hmm. If a man abide not in me, he is cast forth as a branch. In other words, he's not abiding and he's cast forth as a branch. The branch withers and dies. And then the men gather them and cast them into the fire and they are burned. Well, this is how serious of a subject that we're dealing with here. And this may relate to like the parable of the sower where the Bible talks about some seed fell on good ground, some fell on stony ground, these types of things. Where they're not actually abiding in Jesus Christ. They're falling away. Okay, they were tested, they were tried, but they fell away. They went into apostasy. They're trying to crucify, re-crucify the Son of God afresh. And the Bible talks about it's impossible to renew such an one under repentance. And that talks about that in Hebrews. Okay, now that's a whole other subject that I don't even, I don't have time to get into today, but it's something that we do need to, uh, to think about. Okay, so ju- just to clarify that point. Um, regarding these works and abiding in Jesus Christ. Now, if any man build, this is uh, 1 Corinthians 3, verse, let's just go to verse 12. And I mentioned this, but I, just to have, so you have the, the Bible verses here. Now, if any man build upon this foundation, gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or stubble, every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire. The fire is what's going to judge all of our works as born-again Christians. Okay? And the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. Okay? His works are being judged here at the judgment seat of Christ. Okay? That's what's being judged. If any man's work abide, which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss. But he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. His works are all burned up, and he's saved, yet so as by fire. Okay? So, anyway, that's where, that's where that, that is, that is actually mentioned in scripture. Okay? So, if we go further, we go back to John 15. Now I do not believe that John John 15 here where it says the work uh, where it says the branch is cast into the fire and it's burned. I don't believe that's referring to the judgment seat of Christ. Okay, that's specifically talking about a born again Christian whose works are burned up and they're saved yet so is by fire. This is talking about men that gather them and are cast them into the fire and they are burned. Okay? So it appears as though they've not they're not abiding in the vine. They've fallen away. They've they've shown themselves to be what they are. They're they're uh, 
And again, it, it does seem to relate to the four types of, of soil that seed can fall on. Okay? Because what is the, the, one, the one type of soil that it talks about, the one that bears 30, 60, or 100 fold? Okay, what is that? That's bearing fruit. Okay? So the ones that abide in the vine are the ones that, that bear fruit 30, 60, or 100 fold. Goes on to say, If ye abide in me, and my words abide in you, ye shall ask what ye will, and it shall be done unto you. So it says, if you abide in me, and my words abide in you. This is why I tell people to memorize scripture. Because it really is important that Jesus' words abide in you. You know, remember, sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. See how this is so dependent upon the Bible itself? Okay? This is a way we can also get our prayers answers. Because if you're abiding in Jesus Christ and His words are abiding in you, it says you shall ask what you will and it shall be done of you. Now this is in accordance with the will of the Father. Okay? Herein is my Father glorified that ye bear much fruit. So shall ye be my disciples. If you continue my word, then are ye my disciples indeed. So again, I just wanted to drive that point home. To, for everybody to understand that this is a really serious issue we're talking about. This is an issue for a lot of people of heaven or hell. This study. Because they've fallen into this, this Hebrew Roots Christian Zionism study, or, or, or movement, and they're being moved away from the Word of God. They're not being moved, to, they're being moved away, they're, they're being taught to question and to um, look at extra-biblical interpretations and to totally get away from the King James, because it's been totally mistranslated, they say. Whereas God is not the author of confusion. That's one of the reasons I'm, I'm, I guess I'm so adamant about this. Because the stakes are literally heaven and hell for a lot of the people in this movement. Okay, so, reasons that the first day of the week is important to Christians... Number one, Jesus rose on the first day of the week and not the Sabbath. Okay, where's that proven? Mark 16, 9, Luke 24, 1 through 6. Okay, um, I'm not, again, I'm not, I, if we try to go to every single one of these verses, we, we'd be, who knows how many studies. Number two, uh, all post-resurrection, biblically referenced appearances of Jesus happen on two Sundays. None on the Sabbath. Where? Mark 16.9, Matthew 28.5-9, Luke 24. The whole, just read the whole chapter in Luke 24. John 20.19 um, 20, and John 20.26. 20, Jesus appeared after the resurrection on two different Sundays. Three, disciples are recorded assembling on Sunday after the resurrection... And before the ascension, uh, you can see John twenty nineteen and John twenty twenty six. Let's let's go ahead and go to those, and uh, we will look at that. John twenty nineteen. John twenty nineteen. We'll start there. And again, the whole chapter is in reference to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, uh, which happened again on the first day of the week. Again, verse 1 says it right there. 
The first day of the week cometh Mary Magdalene early when, when it was yet dark. The first day of the week cometh Mary Magdalene early when it was yet dark under the sepulchre and see if the stone taken away from the sepulchre. And then it goes unto the whole thing. But it, again, it says it right off the bat. We're dealing with the first day of the week. Okay. Okay, let's go to John 19. And the same day at evening, okay, so this is the same day, first day of the week, Sunday, the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, again, it says it again to reiterate that. I think it's in the Bible here so many times, so many verses where it says the first day of the week, because Jesus Christ, who is the word, knew how much trouble we were going to have, not only after his death, because this is the same thing that the disciples dealt with, and a big reason why they ended up being crucified, because of the Pharisees and Sadducees. But it's also the same thing we're dealing with now. And to be honest, there's not a lot of resources up on the internet that are really getting into this battle. And I can understand why, because the, the attacks that I've been under since I started this teaching are unlike anything I've ever known. So I can imagine a lot of ministries up there probably have endured some, and maybe backed off this issue some. I, I mean, I'm not going to say all, but I'm, all I'm saying is that there's not a lot of resources about this up on the internet. These subjects that I'm talking about, this seekgod.ca, is excellent, excellent. They have earnestly contended for the faith regarding regarding this matter. But when I plugged in Hebrew roots and then the words refuted. Uh, heresy and Bible, when I plug those those into the keyword search box, the two top things were two of the teachings I've done on this, on Sermon Audio. Now, I'm not bragging, but I'm just saying those were the top two, because I'm thinking, okay, there's got to be tons of ministries out there doing this. <laughs> there's not. There's, there's very few people that have went after this. And I understand there's so much heresy and apostasy going on right now, it's hard to keep up with it all. I get requests all the time, could you do a teaching on this or that? No, I, I, I just, there's no way. In fact, the, the sheer volume of questions that I'm getting, literally, I, I just about can't keep up with it at this point. I'm being bombarded. I could sometimes sit at my computer the whole day answer questions, and then hit the send and receive button, answer another battery of questions. And it's making it really tough for me to even get these teachings done, to try to accommodate everybody. So, just bear that in mind if you email me. I'm under... Uh, and it's not really anything I can delegate, because a lot of these are very specific questions. Uh, I don't have a website up on the internet where, where they could go to search this stuff out. That's fallen through on a couple different occasions. And I don't have the time to really pursue it. So uh, I'm just doing what I can do up until the point when the thought police most likely will come and shut things down. But again, the Lord the Lord um, is in charge. The Lord Jesus Christ is in charge of all this. So if we go to um, verse 19, John 20, and then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled, for fear of the Jews... Came Jesus. Remember, the fear of man bringeth a snare. But what ultimately ended up empowering the disciples was when the Holy Spirit came down. That's what ended up empowering them. If you look at in, in Acts, at Pentecost, all of a sudden Peter was out there preaching boldly. Okay, because see, remember, I can do all things through Christ 
which strengthened me. It's not about you going out there being Mr. Big and Bad and, and or Mrs. Big and Bad and out there conquering the world for Christ. If you're trying to do that apart from the Holy Spirit, you are going to fail miserably. Okay, It's what Christ can do through you, but you have to humble yourself as a little child in order, I believe, to, to appropriate that. I mean, you can't have pride in you and go out there and think, I'm going to conquer the world for Christ. Going further... Uh, they were assembled for fear of the Jews. Now, these were the disciples. Came Jesus and stood in the midst of the disciples, saith unto them, Peace be unto you. Okay, and remember, this is the first day of the week Jesus appears. Okay, Sunday. Now, again, I'm not doing this so I can tell everybody, well, Sunday is our new... Um, I shouldn't even say that yet because I haven't gotten far enough into the study. Let me let me just let me go further before I get into that can of worms. Jesus appears to them on Sunday. He's risen. Okay. He appears to the disciples, Mary Magdalene. Okay, so we're looking at these things here. And then it and then it goes on in verse 21. Then sent Jesus to them, Peace be unto you, as my Father hath sent me, even so I send unto you. Okay, now, we are going to... I'm just going to incorporate that into this. And when he had said this, he breathed on them, and saith unto them, Receive ye the Holy Ghost. This is the first time, as far as I can see in the Bible, that the Holy Ghost was actually imparted to a believer in regard to a, you know, Jesus Christ doing it. Receive ye the Holy Ghost. The Holy Spirit indwelling somebody. Someone. And then he goes on to say, Whosoever sins ye remit, they are remitted unto them. And whosoever sins ye retain, they are retained. That's an interesting verse. Ever ever heard that one preached on? <laughs> Never. I've heard one man talk about that verse. Ever. Interesting verse. Now, again, with that verse, let's go to Matthew 18, 18. So Jesus Christ has just said, after he's imparted the Holy Spirit, he breathed on them. And the Holy Spirit many times is equated with the wind, you know. Uh, so, it, you know, it's kind of a uh, comparison there. Receive ye the Holy Ghost. And then the next thing he says after that was, Whosoever sins ye remit, they are remitted unto them. And whosoever sins ye retain, they are retained. Hmm. Matthew 18, 18 says, Verily, and this is Jesus Christ, Verily I say unto you, Whatsoever ye shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever ye shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now, we're talking about a spiritual warfare thing here. Okay, Remember, we battle not against flesh and blood, but against princes and principalities and powers and rulers of wickedness in high places, according to Ephesians 6. This is what they're talking about. Are they talking about physically binding a human? No. This is the power that is to be imparted to the born-again Christian with the Holy Spirit living inside them. But again, this isn't something that you normally hear a lot of prayer or, or teachings on. Then verse 19, again I say unto you, this is Jesus talking, that if two of you shall agree on earth as touching anything, that they shall ask. It shall be done for them of my Father which is in heaven. And I, again, that's according to the will of the Lord. If you're asking something outside His will, 
Okay. Just something to bear in mind. And then it goes on to say, For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am in the midst of them. Praise the Lord. Again, I think that may relate somewhat to this Bible verse we're reading here. And this is the only place it says in John 20, Whosoever sins you remit, they remitted unto them, and whoever sins you retain, they are retained. Okay, so if we go further, uh, looking at that portion, and again, we're kind of segueing off what we were talking about here. Okay, but it, it's part of this verse, so it's where the Holy Spirit was first imparted, and it relates to the subject, and it did happen on the first day of the week, so that's why I'm mentioning it. Okay, uh, Okay. so now let's go to another verse that, that I believe may relate to this. Oh, John 7, John 7, verse 37. In the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. Now remember, we are made clean through his word, the washing of the water of the word. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you shall bear much fruit. Remember, the word is always compared to the water. Okay? And isn't it funny, if any man thirst, what do you get thirsty for? Water. Let him come unto me and drink. Isn't that kind of neat? That that parallel there? He that believeth on me, as the scripture hath saith, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. Out of his belly. Well, that's kind of where I've, I've, I've um, seen a lot of expositors of the world say, you know, the Holy Spirit lives inside you. He, you know, he, he dwells within your belly or, or your inward, your innermost parts. Your, um, so anyway, that's what they'll say a lot of times. And out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. And I do believe that is reference to, if it's going to flow out of you, to a certain extent, you're going to be quoting the word, which is compared to water, which is what sanctifies us, which is what cleans us, which is what, which is what is essential to abiding in the vine and getting our prayers answered as well. So again, that's another, another verse you can think about quoting scripture. Uh, and then verse 39, John 7 verse 39, but this spake he of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, capital S, which they that believe on him should receive. For the Holy Ghost was not yet given. That's something to, very important to understand. There, there were times when Jesus said certain things in the Gospels that were different after the Holy Spirit was given. Okay? For the Holy Ghost was not yet given because that Jesus was not yet glorified. So again, just some interesting points here to think about. Now, going back to John 20, verse, uh, you know, we're looking at verse 22, and when he had said this, he breathed on them and saith unto them, the disciples, receive ye the Holy Ghost. Whosoever sins ye remit, they are remitted unto them, and whosoever sins ye retain, they are retained. Now, did they get saved any different way than we get saved? The, the disciples? I don't think so. We have the Holy Spirit the, uh, of God indwelling us as born-again Christians. And he says to them, whosoever sins you remit, they are remitted, and whosoever sins you retain, they are retained. Huh. 
The word remit, and I'm just, and you don't hear me do this very often, but in the Greek means to send away in this particular application that we're looking at here. To send away. No, Webster 1828 defines the word in this specific verse, because that's the neat thing about Noah Webster. Not only does it closely define the words as they were written in the King James much more accurately, but many times the specific verse you're looking up, they'll actually use that verse as the example for the definition they're giving you. And they did that. And for this specific verse, the Noah Webster defined remit as to pardon as a fault or a crime. End of quote. To pardon as a fault or a crime. Hmm. It's interesting. Very interesting verse. So, going further, I'm going to go jump up to, uh, it's well, verse 24 says, But Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. And the other disciples therefore said unto him, We have seen the Lord, but he said unto them, Thomas, except I shall see his hands, the print of the nails, and put my finger into the print of the nails, and thrust my hand into his side, I will not believe. This is where we get the term doubting Thomas. You hear that? We use a doubting Thomas. That's the Bible verse it came from. Okay? Or the main one. And after eight days, again, his disciples were within. Now that, again, after that eight days, is also in reference to the um, Sunday. And we're going to see that later in the, the study, that that's a... Um, uh, it's considered, sometimes talked about as the eighth day. Sunday. Okay? The first day of the week, but it's the day after the seventh day, which would be the eighth day. It's just the way it's kind of stated in, in, I believe, Old English. So after eight days again, the disciples were within, and Thomas with them. Then came Jesus, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, Peace be unto you. So, okay, the next Sunday, Thomas was there. Jesus came there again, said, Peace be unto you. Then he saith to Thomas, Reach hither thy finger, and behold my hands, and reach hither thy hand, and thrust it into my side, and be not faultless, but believing. Okay, so again, Jesus appears on two Sundays consecutively. Uh, that's another, you know, thing to look at. Uh, another reason we can look at why the why Sunday is uh, biblically important. Christians are recorded to have assembled together uh, on Sunday in Acts twenty seven. Never does it say that the the disciples assembled on the Sabbath. Another reason: the only day ever mentioned when Christians broke bread was on Sunday in Acts 27. I mean, if you go to Acts 27, you can read it for yourself. Acts 27. And upon the first day of the week, Sunday, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul preached unto them, ready to depart on the morrow, and continued his speech until midnight. Okay? So that was a day that they were specifically mentioned that they were gathering. Now let's go to 1 Corinthians 16, verse 1. Now I talked about this verse in the teaching I did on the, the New Testament concept of giving versus the Old Testament Levitical tithe. Okay, because they're two totally different things. And uh, you need to listen to that teaching, just key and tithe or giving in my keyword search box on my homepage to understand that. Verse, uh, chapter 16, 1 Corinthians, 
it says, Now as concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given order to the churches of Galatia, even so do ye. So in other words, he's saying, I've already said this to the church of Galatians. Now I'm saying this to you. Upon the first day of the week, let every one of you lay by him in store. Now that's Sunday. Let every one of you lay in him by store, as God hath prospered him, that there be no gatherings when I come. That's the essence of the New, Con- the New Testament concept of giving. Now, uh, it doesn't say, put that into the common treasury of the church and build a big church, does it? No. What does it say? It says, concerning the collection for the saints, the actual people that made up the church, The money wasn't being spent to build big, gigantic edifices and these types of things. It was being actually spent or given to the saints as they had need. Hmm, that's an interesting concept, isn't it? Another thing you don't hear preached out, preached very much on. And how did they give? As God hath prospered him, that there be no gatherings when I come. Okay? There's another verse that talks about this. And, and then one verse that relates to that while we're on the subject. Second uh, Corinthians verse 8, uh, chapter 8, verse 8. But by equality, this is regarding giving, that now at this time your abundance may be a supply for their want. So you give out of your abundance is what how they were giving, that their abundance also may be a supply for your want, that there may be equality, as it is written, he that hath gathered much had nothing over, and he that had gathered little had no lack. See, this is the way the New, the New Testament church operated. It's not even remotely the way it operates today at all. Oh no, we must, we're going to ignore, I mean, the littlest things they have in most churches are their benevolent funds which are the funds that actually go back to people in the church. Those are the littlest, at least in America. Okay, But in the, old, in the New Testament church, the way it started, it was the biggest thing that was given to. It's obvious here. Okay, Where does it say build big buildings and incorporate them and get yoked up with the government in order to secure your 501c3 status? And then it goes on in verse 6 of chapter 9, 2 Corinthians. But this I say, he which soweth sparingly shall also reap sparingly, and he which soweth bountifully shall reap bountifully. Every man according as he hath purposed in his heart, so let him give. They're giving out of their abundance, and they're doing it as he's purposed it in his heart. Not this strict, just got to do this 10% tie to the Levitical priesthood. We're not under that anymore. Are we still under the law? Hopefully we've proven that after the last teachings. Now some of you may feel convicted to give 10%. Okay, but let the Holy Spirit be the one that's convicting you to do it, not because you think you're bound by the law to do it. Every man according as he has purposed in his heart, so let him give. That's the New New Testament concept of giving, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loveth a cheerful giver. If you give, number one, to be seen among all men, Jesus says, verily you have your reward. You've got your reward. You've been seen of men. There's your reward. It's not in heaven. Or if you give grudgingly, I believe that's another way to get your reward blotted out. Because you're doing it grudgingly. 
The Lord loves a cheerful giver. So, just a couple things to look at there. I know I'm kind of getting off track here, but it, it was kind of part of that. So, anyway, the point there was that they took up this offering for the saints on the first day of the week. Now, do you think if they were gathering the first day of the week, which was Sunday, and they were taking up the offering, maybe they were having their church services at that point? Not to say they couldn't be having them other days of the week too, but it does seem to be the day that we look here where they're gathering together. And we're going to be proving that going further in this. Now, also, another thing to look at, the power of the Holy Spirit came down on Pentecost Sunday. Oh, it wasn't on Sunday. Okay, well, we're going to prove that right now. Okay, if you go to Acts 2, 1 through 4. Now, again, now we're getting into a lot of where the Seventh-day Adventists would start really rearing their... rearing up, or getting mad. Acts 2, verse 1 through 4. And when the day of Pentecost was come... They were all with one accord in one place, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of the rushing of a mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto the cloven tongues like as a fire, and it set upon each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost, and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance, and there in there were dwelling at Jerusalem Jews, devout men, out of every nation under heaven. Okay, so this is when, you know, the Holy Spirit seems to be fully imparted into the church at this point. Okay, Jesus told them to go do this. Where does he say that? Uh, let's see here. Okay, just to find that out real, uh, e- easily, you can go to uh, Acts 1, verse 4. Where it says, and being assembled together with them, commanded them, Jesus commanding them. This is after he was, uh, after he, you know, appeared to them, after the three days in the tomb, okay? And being assembled together with them, commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem. This is what Jesus Christ said, okay? But wait for the promise of the Father, which saith he, ye have heard of me. For John truly baptized with water... But ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days thence. Okay, so this is where Jesus, why he told him to wait there. Okay, and this happened on a Sunday. Now we're going to prove that right now. If we read Leviticus 23, if we go to Leviticus 23, verse 15. Leviticus 23, verse 15. Now, these are some of the feasts in the Bible being described biblically. And this is Pentecost we're in reference to specifically. Okay. Verse 15, Leviticus 23. And ye shall count unto you from the morrow after the Sabbath. Okay, so this is the day after the Sabbath. What's that saying? It's a Sunday. Okay. And ye shall count unto you from the morrow, after the Sabbath, from the day that ye brought the sheave of the wave offerings, even seven Sabbaths shall be complete. Fifty days. Seven Sabbaths. What does that mean? Seven days 
or in a week. Seven Sabbaths would be would be seven times seven, 49 days. And then it's the day after the last Sabbath, okay? Which would make it 50 days. Okay, 50 days um, is, is the day that we're, we're, is what we're looking at here. And it's proven in the next verse, okay? Even unto the morrow, after the seventh Sabbath, okay, so we're talking about the day after the seventh Sabbath, shall ye number 50 days, and ye shall offer a new meat offering unto the Lord. This is the Feast of Pentecost, okay? After these seven Sabbaths, the day after, which is a Sunday, Okay, the Bible's very clear on that. Now, just to clarify this even further, that the Holy Ghost fell on a Sunday at Pentecost, there were two competing views at the time of Christ on how to calculate the day of Pentecost. For the Sadducees, Pentecost always fell on a Sunday. Okay, remember what I said before? There was competing views with the, the Sadducees and the Pharisees. The Sadducees, although they had a lot of problems... And they didn't believe in, the Bible says they didn't believe in the resurrection. They much more wanted to stick with the Bible than the Pharisees did. The Pharisees were where we really get all of these oral traditions that ended up being committed into writing, like the Babylonian Talmud and things like this. They're the ones that really, really brought in the leaven. The, 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 the extra biblical leaven that I'm battling and that we are battling in this very day and age that we live in. Uh, there's much more of it now than there was back then, because a lot of this stuff hadn't been committed to writing, as it is now. A lot of the extra-biblical stuff that we're fighting against here, the Talmud being one. So, for the Sadducees, Pentecost always fell on Sunday, while the Pharisees had it on various days of the week. Remember, the Pharisees were the ones that were really, really in doctrinal air, I believe much more than the Sadducees. Yet, in Acts 2.1, with the Friday Passover, both would have agreed that Pentecost fell on the first day of Acts 2.1, which was likely 30 A.D. But the specific year is not important. The difference was that the Sadducees started counting 50 days after the first weekly Sabbath, and the Pharisees started counting 50 days after the yearly Sabbath, i.e. the Passover. It is well documented beyond question that the Sadducees controlled the temple worship and the feast days at the time of Christ. It wasn't until about 70 AD that the Pharisees came into power and prominence. This means that even though both methods of calculating Pentecost agreed that it fell on the first day of the week in Acts 2.1, the Sadducees would have had the official say at this time to actually calculate the actual day. In other words, during Christ's 30 year, years on earth as a man, Pentecost always fell on the first day of the week, which was Sunday. And the Bible is very clear that it falls on the first day of the week, according to Leviticus 23, verses 15 and 16. So, again, this is significant in regard to um, why this is an important thing. The disciples' reception of the promise of the Father occurred on the Sunday. And again, we can, act, we can look at Acts 1 through 4 which we just read, where this was uh, prophesied in times past, Acts 1, 4 through 5, this occurred on a Sunday. And again, these are just, you know, things to think about here more than anything. I'll just read that again briefly. And being assembled together with them, commanded them, 
that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which he saith, ye have heard of me. For John truly baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost, not many days thence. Okay? So this promise was fulfilled on a Sunday. Uh, Going further, salvation was first preached by Peter with power on Sunday. Remember, and if we go to Acts um, 2, 38, and verse 40 and 41, we can see Peter bringing this first salvation message. And remember, they were, they were assembled together before they were assembled together, but it even talked about in the Bible that they were there for the fear of the Jews. Okay? So now, all of a sudden, they're totally different. They're, they're not afraid of the Jews. He's out there preaching openly. It's the power of the Holy Spirit. It did occur on a Sunday. Uh, let's see here. The Great Triumphal Entry, also called Palm Sunday, happened on the first day. Uh, see Luke 13.32. The first time Jesus had actually broke bread after his resurrection was with his disciples was on a Sunday. And again, if we go to Luke 24.28. Luke 24.28. We can read about that. Okay, and again, um, and again, this is the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, where Jesus appears to them, but they don't know who it is that's actually appeared to them, and they're talking. And if we actually, let's just go um, to verse twenty-nine. But they, meaning these disciples, constrained him, Jesus, saying, "Abide with us." For it is toward evening, and the day is far spent. And he went into tarry with them, and it came to pass, as he sat at meat with them, he, meaning Jesus, took bread, and blessed it, and brake it, and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they knew him, and then and, and he vanished out of their sight. So this is the first time Jesus actually ever broke bread after the resurrection, and that occurred on a Sunday as well, with the disciples on the road to Emmaus. So again, just very... Interesting thing, what we're saying here is that it doesn't seem as though the Sabbath is what's being emphasized here at all. 